So we did mention off the top, a lot of news today. And we did find out the biggest newsmaker of the year. The Canadian press announcing that its newsmaker of the year is none other than conservative leader Pierre Polyev. Here to talk about that, Tim Powers, chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, welcome to the program. Good to be with you tonight, Sid. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you for asking. And uh, I don't think it will come as a surprise to many. Uh, I mean, there were others certainly that made news, but Pierre Polyev certainly seemed to be all over the news this year. His message seemed to really cut through. I think at times recently, even the prime minister giving some credit for the Mm -hmm. way that he was able to cut through with, you know, really simple messages, acts, the tax and that sort of thing. So I don't know that it would be a surprise that he would be, quote unquote, crowned the newsmaker of the year. No, I don't think so. Look, for the last three or four months, it's been pretty obvious that he has been driving the domestic political agenda. I mean, obviously, international strife in uh, in Israel and the Ukraine uh, and elsewhere um, is is driving the global news agenda. But here at home, he's opened up significant polling leads over the uh, the prime minister. He's tapped into, as you uh, alluded to a vein of uh, upset, anxiety, desperation, you pick your word, around how people are feeling about their own personal economic circumstances, affordability, and the like. And he sits here in a position that probably very few people ever envisioned, one where were an election called today, he would likely win a fairly strong majority government. It would certainly look like that, and I guess if... uh you know, from the the perspective of the federal liberals, maybe they're hoping he's peaked at this point and maybe they can chip away at it and maybe he's been overexposed and people will get tired of him because uh, it's it's difficult sometimes to pinpoint whether someone like Pierre Polyev, and maybe it's a combination of all of these things, but is he popular because of uh, any of the policies that he's proposing? Is it his simple messaging and the way that he's handling the media that is that is driving this? Or is it simply that he's not Justin Trudeau and people are tired of the same person after eight years? Yeah, well, our polling firm Abacus has done a lot of work uh, on this recently, and a lot of the conservatives' gain has been at the expense of the liberals and the fatigue and frustration, anger that exists towards uh, the prime minister after eight-plus years in office. I mean, what's fascinating about our data, Sid, is um, you break it up into different cohorts, uh, and you find Polyev dominating just about every one of them, from you know Gen Zs to Millennials, which were usually the preserve of the Liberal Party. He's uh, doing very well, dominating in the Millennial cohort uh, for female voters, and it's a broad cohort. But usually, again, the uh, the strong preserve of the Prime Minister. Um, the last. Bit of data, I believe, I saw from us that uh, that uh, was out had uh, Pierre at uh, eight or ten points ahead in that cohort. If the Liberals don't lead among women; it's tough for them. Uh, that said, I mean, you dig into this, and the Liberals um, still some uh, will tell you that Justin Trudeau is their uh, their best option. So, but but that's Canadian history, right? Governments uh, often. Uh, when they are in decline, uh, that benefits the principal opposition leader, and in this case, Mr. Polyev, who really has connected with people on the main issue of the day for so many of them, affordability. And, and you've had some time, obviously, to sort of digest and put some context behind the numbers that, that the polling is finding. 
initially, was it surprising to see this start to trend that way when, as you say, with some of these voting groups that might traditionally be a little more centrist or a little more progressive, which would tend to make you believe that they might uh, vote liberal, might vote NDP, and yet seem to be gravitating at least over the last several months towards the conservatives and Polyev? Yeah, it's almost as if uh, millennials and Gen Z, who in previous election campaigns uh, had been very uh, attuned to the messaging of the prime minister, uh, found that he, he, the prime minister, hadn't delivered for them. I mean, you will recall in the 2015 campaign and the uh, the principally that campaign going into the 29 campaign, it was about, you know, millennials, uh, the argument that was made by the prime minister, you know, striving for the middle class, looking for prosperity. And I think many of the people in those cohorts haven't felt like it's been real for them. So they're holding the prime minister to account on that. Also, I think there was some weight that that voting cohort gave to climate change, which is still important to them. But they're finding now it's harder to buy homes. Uh, they're spending more time either in rental units or living with family. Uh, it's harder to get ahead. Um, things are not cheaper. They're more expensive. What's really interesting, Sid, is you can almost draw a line, too, uh, with the when the rate changes, uh, when the Bank of Canada began to, you know, hike, uh, in, uh, hike the, uh, the interest rate. Um, you start to see then things really start to deteriorate for the Liberals. And you will know, and, and remember, and your listeners will know, one of the things Polyev did and was criticized for it at the, t- at the time was trying to link the policies of the Bank of Canada, which is itself independent, as we know, to the Liberal government. In the minds of the public, um, they were seeing the Polyev link and not understanding the ho- historical independence of the Bank of Canada. And And it is tough, as you say, uh, and, and the numbers maybe bear this out, to convince uh, Canadians, young or old, that they're better off under the current government if all of a sudden uh, a house that they thought they might be able to afford three or four years ago is now out of reach. Their rent may be out of reach in some months. They go to the grocery store and there's, you know, sticker shock uh, used to be reserved for major purchases like cars and homes, but there's sticker shock at the checkout counter at the grocery store, utilities, on and on and on. And and w- we can quibble about, uh, you know, how much control and influence does the federal government have over some of these. It certainly has some influence on some. Uh, there are outside factors. It's a global economy uh, and all the rest of it. But it, it comes down to that one person that's looking at voting and saying, who do I trust to make things better for me and make me be able to afford to just go on and live my life? Yeah, exactly. And look, when the economy is bad, uh, it is usually incumbents that where you can step back, you know, 30 odd years and uh, remember that old, uh, old uh, statement by um, James Carville, who ran the Clinton campaign back then, uh, went contrasting himself to Bush senior. It's the economy stupid. And right. that, is it right that message is still applicable today and the prime minister and his team Krishia Freeland the finance minister and others haven't been able to connect with Canadians they haven't been able to demonstrate that that empathy I mean you'll remember Minister Freeland got herself in trouble and you know she talked about we'd all have to tighten our belts she, she was going to cut her Disney plus subscription it was that kind of stuff that really <laughs> irritated people 
I mean, I know you can't see Mickey Mouse, and that's tough, but you sound a bit Mickey Mouse-ish when that's the way you try to communicate with Canadians. Uh, how much would it help, or would it, do you think? I know there are some economists and you know forecasting that we could be in for one, two, maybe three uh, interest rate cuts in, in, in the coming yeah. year. If that were to happen, would that help? Uh, potentially. Um, potentially. Look, uh, you know, we do have volatility in Canadian politics, and people are angry now, and it's heavily focused on the prime minister. But it would have to be more than that, too. I think uh, improvement, I think the government is banking on using every moment that they have between now and the next election for the economy to improve, uh, for people's you know, sense of, of, of purpose to improve, for some of the anger that has been out there that has you know, carried through from the pandemic to now, um, for all of that to dissipate. Yeah, those things can make a difference. I mean, look next door to you in, uh, in, in Alberta. You'll re- recall just before the election uh, where Daniel Smith got reelected, um, she was in the toilet in, in polling numbers, and uh, Rachel Notley was well ahead, and she came back and won. So it is possible. And and, and maybe, uh, Tim, for Pierre Polyev, one of the, the more famous or maybe infamous interviews that he gave this year came not all that long ago. On the, on the topic, I mean, in terms of your sort of strategy currently, you're obviously taking the populist uh, pathway. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, ap- appealing appealing to people's uh, more emotional levels, I would guess. Um, I mean, what certainly, you mean certainly, you, certainly you tap certainly you tap uh, very strong ideological language quite frequently. Like what? Uh, left wing, you know, this and that. Right wing, you know. I mean, it's that that type I of ideological thing. About, I never really talk about left but or right. Anyways, a lot I don't of people really believe in that. Okay, uh, it's simply become known as uh, the Apple interview uh, conducted. <laughs> in an orchard in the Okanagan. Some people, I think, were aghast at just the uh, how flippant he was. Uh, others, uh, certainly his supporters, were cheering him on. I think he made hay out of it. They, they, they made T-shirts uh, with him eating an apple on it to kind of take advantage of some of the, uh, the press and some of the notoriety around it. It's those sorts of things, uh, I, I think, for supporters that, that maybe would say, well, this is one of the reasons why we like this guy and we think he's just like us and he's willing to push back and he's not willing to just sit there and take it. And for others that on the other side of the political spectrum that are saying this is not someone that we can take seriously and we want to be the next prime minister of Canada. We really are divided, not only on him, on the prime minister, but it's, it's, there, there's a big gulf there between the two sides right now. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Polyev has always been a polarizing figure, uh, but for conservatives right now, he's a unifying figure. Uh, you look back at the last two leaders, um, Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Scheer, um, they they didn't necessarily have control of the Conservative Party. They didn't uh, have uh, full and total support of their caucuses, which became a challenge for each of them and, and became their undoing. Pierre Polyev doesn't have any of those challenges. So he'll go harder on the stuff that conservatives like, you know, some of that smarmy um, talk and behavior towards the media is something conservatives have, have eaten up since the days of, of Stephen Harper. If you're not beating on the mainstream media, you, you know, you're clearly a failure as a conservative uh, leader. And, and Pierre Bali pays attention to that. He's also demonstrated, which I think, the liberals have noticed, and, and you see this in how they're, they themselves are trying to push back on Polyev. 
how he's been able to connect um, more directly with people through social media. He seems to be right now the most effective federal leader at doing that. You know, this so-called housing documentary, the 15-minute um, video that was done as he analyzed the housing crisis that was pushed out. And the last time I heard, it had over 4 million views. I mean, as you well know, Sid, good luck for any national newscast, uh, or all three of them, be they Global CTV and uh, CBC, on any night to have that number of people except on a, in a special event sort of coverage. So, you know, he's getting the people in places, and he, he doesn't think he has to pay attention uh, to the degree that leaders once did to the mainstream media. So that allows for more of Pierre as Pierre, as he thinks is appealing, as opposed to uh, a caricature of, uh, of, 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 of something else. Well, he's uh, certainly had a good year in terms of, of making news and, and catching people's attention, breaking through, cutting through with that simple messaging of his and, and, and rising in the polls. We'll see what 24 has in store. Uh, Tim, thanks for your time tonight. We appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Have a good holiday season. Uh, first, though, Environment Minister Stephen Gibault announced new measures today that will phase out the sale of new gas-powered cars and light-duty trucks. Gibault actually released a commercial on social media extolling the virtues of the plan, which, let's be honest, has been telegraphed for some time now. There's a whole new clean electricity world coming, and zero-emission vehicles are a big part of it. You're not wrong there. Zero-emission vehicles have been gaining market share around the world. Canada's not the only country that's been trying to uh, push the electrification of vehicles, but the pace at which Canada plans to phase out gas-powered vehicles uh, may be considered by some to be, let's just say, ambitious. Today, we're introducing regulated sales targets for new light-duty vehicles. The goal? To support Canada's plan to ensure that all new light-duty passenger vehicle sales are zero-emission vehicle by 2035. So 2035, that's what, 11, 12 years ago, uh, 12 years to, to come as we celebrate the new year in just a couple of weeks. Is this a win for Canada? This is a win for Canada in so many ways. Cleaner air, healthier communities, and huge savings in both fuel and maintenance costs for drivers over the lifetime of their vehicles. Now, remember, this is the Environment Minister's commercial, not, a, not from a news conference. It would certainly seem that they're are savings to be had with zero emission vehicles. However, one of the current roadblocks, just talk to people in the market for new vehicles, one of the current roadblocks to mass adoption is the upfront cost that may never be recovered simply by charging a car rather than gassing it up. And what about that? Where are those charging stations? With the help of provinces and the private sector, we're building a vast network of charging stations from coast to coast. That means you will never be far when it comes time to recharge. I think the figure that was floated today was 86,000 charging stations. That would be a massive undertaking and really no doubt it's going to happen at some point. The question may be just how quickly can this happen? Uh, Some may have picked up about that bit about cooperation from provinces. And I guess depending on your perspective, maybe depending on the region you come from, you may think, yeah, that's a foregone conclusion. Of course, the federal and provincial governments are going to cooperate and others may say that that would seem, you know, downright adorable at this point in time. Uh, but maybe we shouldn't be skeptical. Let's try and get to the bottom of this and let's try and map out what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And, uh, and, and, and where are we now? And, and is this too ambitious or is this 
perfectly fine. We're joined by David Adams. He's the president of Global Automakers of Canada. David, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm curious uh, for your take on this. This is, I, I, First of all, I don't think this announcement comes as a surprise. We've been expecting something along these lines, but I know there was in the industry some hope, I guess, that there might be a little bit more dialogue and discussion before it got to this point today. Well, you're right. I mean, it has been telegraphed for some time. Today was actually the uh, announcement of the, the final regulation, uh, I guess what they're they're now calling the uh, um, uh, well, electric vehicle availability standard, which is really an amendment to the uh, to the um, emission vehicle regulations. But uh, yeah, this was first announced. It was a Christmas gift, I guess, to the auto industry last year at about this time, and we're getting the final regulation today. And you know, of course, um, it's a first for Canada as a nation, but um, BC, as, as you know, has its own zero emission vehicle standard, and Quebec has their own zero emission vehicle standard as well. So um, I guess the nation is joining the club of the two other provinces. Are are the targets realistic? Well, we would say the the targets, let's just say, are very aspirational. I think it's going to take a lot of work um, for, well, I always use the analogy of dominoes. All the dominoes have to be laid out in exactly the right order and fall in exactly the right timing without one falling out of place for us to have any hope of meeting those targets. Um, They are really challenging and will be uh, interesting to see how things transpire because, Automakers really responsible for putting the vehicles in the marketplace, but um, you know, as you alluded to in the opening comments, uh, consumers are generally concerned right now about both price and the availability of infrastructure out there to be able to charge their vehicles. So um, those two things need to be addressed in order to ensure that we have uh, you know ubiquitous consumer uptake to be able to reach those targets. And a lot of the automakers themselves uh, in the last year, maybe 18 months, have pretty much indicated that they're on board with moving towards plug-in hybrids, moving toward fully electric vehicles. I'm not sure that they're all on the exact same timeline as outlined by the federal government today, but is this an inevitability and it's just a matter of, of, of how we get there and how fast we get there? Well, yeah, I think you've hit the, the nail on the head, uh, Sid. You know, I, our members, um, we represent 15 international automakers in the Canadian marketplace and Canada's two largest manufacturers, Toyota and Honda. And all of our members are on board with the decarbonization of their products. And as you say, the real challenge that we have or difference that we have with the government is how fast can we move towards that target and what mechanisms uh, does the government put in place to uh, try and, and, and move the industry in that direction. And from our perspective, we've always taken the approach with government that, um, you know, we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, so government should pick a target by which they want the industry to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And let the manufacturers figure out what technology should be deployed to be able to reach that goal. I think the challenge with, uh, you know, the the ZEV standard that was introduced today is that it essentially picks one technology. And, uh, you know, as you know, that we've got different manufacturers all at different stages of um, electrifying their fleets. Some have moved, uh, you know, are fully electric uh, and that's all they sell, like Tesla, and others are, 
you know, perhaps much slower in terms of moving uh, towards uh, electrified technology. So that's going to make this standard much more difficult for those particular companies to uh, to meet. Yeah, there were some. I, I was actually surprised not too long ago I was asking uh, a dealership about, uh, it was like a, a compact or subcompact SUV, and I had just assumed mm-hmm. that every uh, every car manufacturer at this point had either a hybrid, maybe not a fully electric, but either a hybrid, a hybrid or a, a plug-in hybrid, and in some cases both, but this one didn't have any in this particular model, and I was kind of struck by that. So I guess they are all moving at their own paces and maybe looking at their own market share and, and their own trends in terms of what's selling and what's not before they jump in fully here. Yeah, and I think that's part of it too, is that I think a regulation like this sort of looks at the whole industry as being uh, you know, everybody's in the same boat or homogeneous, and, and they're just not. You know, I've read, all vehicle manufacturers are at slightly different uh, places, as I said, along the uh, the electrification spectrum, and that's going to make it um, harder for some manufacturers and perhaps a little bit easier for others. But, you know, I think the, the goal from our members' perspective was, okay, uh, we might not necessarily agree with the the mandate, uh, but the, the government made that decision a year ago. It's uh, did they listen to us in our dialogue over the course of last year, and uh, you know tweak the regulations such that it will uh, provide uh, different pathways for uh, vehicle manufacturers to comply. And I think you know what we saw today was that um, the government did make some minor changes to the regulation, which should. Should be helpful, but you know, at the end of the day, the the open questions I think for everybody is uh, is the infrastructure. And um, you know, while I think you noted in the opening, uh, the minister has indicated that the government's planning on having around eighty nine thousand uh, charging pieces of charging infrastructure in place by twenty twenty nine. You know, our calculations show that we're probably going to need about 400,000 charging ports by 2030. So uh, quite a substantial difference between what the government estimates will need and what, uh, you know, the industry thinks that uh, we're going to need. And um, I think too often um, uh, the the number that's thrown out is, well, you know, 80 percent of people charge at their homes. Well, sure, but that's if you if you have a home and uh, and I guess if you're not traveling any significant distance. And the reality is that we've got around 30% to 40% of Canadians that don't live in uh, uh, single-family dwellings or do live in single-family dwellings but don't have a garage or only have curbside parking or something like that and and don't have access to that charging infrastructure. So, you know, that's going to be extremely important to ensure that infrastructure is in place to, uh, again, to move towards those very aggressive uh, targets that have been set. David Adams is our guest. He's president of Global Automakers of Canada. On a day when the federal government has announced the measures to phase out the sale of new gas-powered cars and light-duty trucks by 2035. And David, you were making a good point before the break about infrastructure and the need to have thousands upon thousands. The federal government says it's aiming to have about roughly maybe just under 90,000 charging stations, new charging stations implemented over the course of the next several years. Um, You cited a study that said we may need as much as 400,000. There is the issue, as you mentioned, not everybody has a home to charge at home. Some people live in apartments. Some people live in condos. Some people who live in homes may want to upgrade to 200 amp service, and there may not be, uh, municipalities may just not be able to handle that. So 
uh, there's a lot here. And I know with any new technology, things improve over time and we get better at it. And, and some of these things may solve themselves over the course of the next few years. It's just that, that timeline that really seems to be ambitious to get all of this figured out. Well, you're, you're right. I mean, I think the, the challenge is, is that, um, you know, a lot of people have observed that as far as early adopters are concerned, we may be well working our way through the early adopters of the technology. And for the early adopters, they sort of, uh, you know, don't care what the price is, don't care um, sort of how inconvenient it is, uh, are willing to make the leap and, and uh, adopt the technology. And, you know, I think the reality is, is that as they were, we're rapidly moving through the early adopters and into those folks that are maybe a little bit more, um, you know, uh, evidence-based, uh, skeptical, want to ensure that the vehicle fits their lifestyle and uh, maybe aren't prepared to put up with the same inconveniences and challenges as we work through these, uh, these early stages of the technology as you outlined. So all that to say, I think it's just going to be that much more, difficult for the industry to uh, continue to move people into um, electric vehicles. And that's certainly something that the industry needs to see happen because, you know, collectively, globally, the industry has invested about $1.6 trillion, according to Bloomberg, to uh, transition their vehicles, build battery plants, and, and so forth to get ready for this transition. So it is a situation where, you know, it's uh, and it's in the industry's best interest to ensure that this uh, this transition works as well. And consumers, uh, you know, don't try the technology and become uh, disenchanted with it. And there will be, at least in the initial stages. And again, with new technology, maybe charging won't take as long. And we know there are different charging stations and superchargers and that sort of thing. But it would seem, mm-hmm. uh, unless I'm mistaken, even some of the superchargers, it's not necessarily like you're. On the highway, you pull in, you, you you top up in five minutes, and you're back on the road. If you get these new uh, charging stations on the highways, and we're talking now about people that are going on road trips, which Canadians love to do, it's uh, it, people are going to be spending a lot more time on the side of the road uh, at these charging stations, at least until the technology maybe catches up to the want of the people. Yeah, and I, I think that's true. And there's a lot of education that needs to be done as well, because just because uh, some of those charging stations that typically at, at gas stations or right off the side of major highways are, are deemed to be fast chargers. They don't all operate at the same charging speed and all vehicles, it's really the vehicle that depends uh, or that dictates rather uh, how much power the vehicle can accept uh, for the battery to charge. So you might think it's a, a fast charger and your fast charge may end up taking you an hour and 20 minutes as opposed to the 15 or 20 minutes that you were anticipating depending on the speed of the charger. And these are all things that, um, you know, that need to be part of broader consumer awareness as consumers adopt the technology. But I think, you know, in terms of your comments about infrastructure, the, the concern is, and you know, I've already experienced that here in Ontario where we don't have near as many EVs as you do in BC that, um, you know, you pull into a charging station and it's not, uh, uh, it's not available, so it's uh, it's not only waiting for your own 20 minutes to charge your vehicle, it's waiting for the person ahead of you that's charging theirs to charge their vehicle as well. So uh, that's why I would underscore the importance of ensuring that we have the infrastructure built out to uh, 
to accommodate um, you know the, the EVs that will be coming onto the road and and to make that experience as uh, as painless and, and as enjoyable as possible for consumers. Uh, we had talked a little bit earlier about the you know the upfront cost of electric vehicles or uh, plug-in hybrid vehicles being a, a, an entry barrier for some people that just aren't able uh, or aren't willing to uh, you know pony up an extra ten or fifteen thousand dollars. And we know the, the the rebates vary by province. So in in some provinces, the difference in cost for an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle compared to a gas vehicle would be less than it might be in other jurisdictions. But I think generally speaking. It's more. Would we expect the cost of those vehicles to come down as we're going through this phase in or phase out period? So we get to that point where they're relatively equal. Is this a scale thing where we're just not producing enough of them right now, or is there more to it than that? Well, no. I think you, you've hit the, head, the nail on the head again. It is really a scale issue. That, that's probably the, the fundamental uh, factor around uh, being able to drive down the cost of, of EVs and. You know, a lot of people think it's the battery. The battery makes a contribution, of course, as well. It's uh, responsible for about 40% of a pure battery electric vehicle's cost. Um, currently, the average price per kilowatt hour is, I think, 100 and around $140. Um, the experts say that, you know, when we get around $100 uh, per kilowatt hour, then we'd be at a position of price parity. But, um, you know, even the minister today acknowledged that we're not likely to see price parity until the end of this decade. So from our perspective, and to your point, um, how do we bridge that gap? And we've been encouraging the government to uh, to continue to offer the uh, the incentives, the rebates to consumers to, to assist in bridging that gap. Um, those rebates don't go all the way, but at, at least they help. But I think the... The challenge is always, um, as the government is forcing the industry to hit more and more aggressive targets, that means more and more EVs are going to be sold, and it becomes very expensive very fast for governments to continue to offer these rebates, um, which then you know leaves them in a situation where they uh, believe they can't afford it anymore, and then that just um, uh, creates another affordability challenge for consumers. But right now in the marketplace, again, depending on the segment, but you're looking at a, an average cost differential of around $14,000 between, um, you know, a, an internal combustion engine vehicle and uh, an electric vehicle. Higher in some uh, segments, you know, so you could be talking tens of thousands of dollars, but that that's the about the average amount. And I think the minister in his comments today was um, – um, was clear in saying over the cost of ownership that um, you know consumers will be able to save money. I think he cited tens of thousands of dollars, but I think the reality is, is that most consumers don't look at the total cost savings over the life of the vehicle. They're looking at their family budget, and especially in, in these times when uh, interest rates are higher and inflation is still rampant and cutting into their family budget in other areas, they're sort of looking at this through the lens of, you know, how much can I afford for my monthly car payment? And they're prepared to, you know, look at maybe six or $700, but they're not prepared to pay an extra $300 or $400 to get a, to get an EV. So this is, uh, 
this is a real challenge, and it's it's something that we I think we do need uh, governments, both federally and provincially, to uh, continue to try and bridge that gap. David, thanks for your time tonight. We appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Well, we all know the kind of fire season it was around uh, much of the country last year. Uh, there was, uh, you know, just less snow last winter in a lot of places than was expected. And then that came into the spring and there was less rain than we would normally get. And we saw in certain parts of the country where the fire season was starting in April. And the fire season across the country just raged and raged for months. And I'm not sure there were many provinces, if any, that were spared the ravages of those wildfires last year. And we talked at the time about resources and about how difficult it is to plan, how difficult it is to staff up, how difficult it is because you're going to remote regions uh, to put these fires out. And now, for example, uh, if we look across the country, abnormally mild conditions, and we were kind of prepared for this, I think, if we were paying attention to what some of the meteorologists were telling us in terms of weather patterns coming into this winter, but uh, very little snowfall so far. In Alberta, for example, severe drought conditions, there's already been a warning to that province's energy regulator that it may need to restrict water to oil and gas producers. Uh, Something like 70% of Canada is experiencing abnormally dry or drought conditions. It's not something that we're really used to talking about in what should be the middle of winter. Uh, We're joined by Cheryl Evans now. Cheryl's a director of flood and wildfire resilience at the Faculty of the Environment at the University of Waterloo. Cheryl, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess uh, there's so much to talk about when it comes to this, and it does seem a little odd to be talking about drought, uh, you know, a week before Christmas when we're usually enveloped in blankets of snow from coast to coast to coast. And for so many areas, that's not the case. And it gets people thinking about, well, if last summer was bad, what does this kind of a winter uh, mean for next summer? Uh, what do you think we're looking at? Uh, or is it just way too early to, to pinpoint? Well, it's certainly too early to, to pinpoint for sure. But uh um, <clears throat> if things continue the way they're going, we'll be set up for a similar um, dry uh, spring like like this year, um, which means that we'll have drought-stressed st- forests, uh, very dry grasslands, in, particularly in the spring when they're vulnerable to ignition. Um and if that, since those materials have been dry for a prolonged period of time, it also means that if there is an ignition, those fires are likely to uh, grow more quickly, have uh, more heat associated with them, and, and actually be more difficult to control. So um, it's a really, really important time of year because we've had a, a huge wildfire season, and this is the time when communities, uh, provinces, territories, uh, federal government, they're all looking at how did this season go? What went well? What could be improved? How can we prepare to have a a year like this or worse next year? Um, So that's part of the reason that we released our uh, wildfire ready report at the Intact Centre. At this time of year, uh, when people are, are... getting some 
some rest and reprieve from the season and then are going to be able to think about what are the next steps for next year. And before we get to those, uh, perhaps some of those next steps, uh, next steps, excuse me, for next year, what what did we learn from, from last year's forest fire season or from uh, maybe the last few years? Because uh, we know that fire season has sort of been extended. It just seemed like last year, uh, I don't know if came out of nowhere is the right way to put it, but it just caught a lot of people off guard that it was that way, widespread and it started so early. Yeah, so... Every year is going to be different, but when you start looking at trends, you start to see um, common themes happening. So when when we looked at um, the research about when wildfire season started in Canada, say when our grandparents were young, so 70 years ago, um, on average the season started one week later and finished up one week uh, sooner, so there is no more time to uh, rest and recover and plan for the for uh, wildfire preparedness for the future for the next year. Um, and now we've got uh, projections coming in that by the end of this century, so another 70 years from now, um, the wildfire seasons on average will be two weeks, start two weeks earlier in the spring and end two weeks later. So, um, and something interesting to note as well is that uh, the, the, it's going to be different across the country depending on essentially the water regimes. And in BC, you can expect a 50% increase in the, the number of hot, dry days that will support an aggressive wildfire season. Whereas on the East Coast, they're going to be getting a two to 300% increase of what they're seeing now. Well, the percentage increases certainly drive home the point because as I was listening here and thinking, okay, like we know it's important, but starting one week early, ending one week later, starting two weeks earlier, ending two weeks later, when in those terms, it doesn't seem that significant. Obviously it is, but when you look at those percentages of hot, dry days, that seems to really drive home the point of what we're facing not only now, but as, as we go to the end of the century. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting because one of the one of the greatest opportunities for us to look at the science, look at traditional uh, ecological knowledge from, from Indigenous people, uh, one of the greatest opportunities there to, is to look at what, um, what the fire regimes used to be like in Canada before, um, before settlement and what the landscape was like and how uh, traditional burning practices were used to protect communities. So that's a really great opportunity and, and often very cost-effective, too, to do controlled burns, pre- prescribed burns, um, to reduce the amount of fuel that's on the ground uh, close to communities to reduce risk. Uh, but when you're shortening your season um, and you have smaller numbers of cool, uh, say, wet or cold days, it can make it more difficult to have these prescribed burns. So it can um, it can be more challenging to use something that is one of the best tools in our toolbox. Uh, Cheryl, we talked about some of the things that, uh, that maybe you're able to learn uh, over the last several years when it comes to helping with forest fire. Is there anything practical in the very near term uh, that we can implement. You talked about prescribed burns for one thing that was maybe something that 
I know some have suggested that maybe we've gotten over the last several decades uh, too good at putting out fires as soon as they start, and maybe at that time we would have been better letting some of them burn. That's hindsight. But what do you think we could do in the near to uh, medium future here to, to combat these forest fires? So I think that one of the, the first opportunities is to um, to help really understand people, help people understand that is their responsibility to reduce the risk of ignition. We know that in Canada, 50% of all wildfires are started by people. Um, so some of them, you know, very rarely are intentional. Somebody, um, you know, tries to start a fire, but... Um, it's often things like people not paying attention to fire bans that are put out in their communities. So they are, um, say they're running their ATVs in, uh, in a forest and the spark from the, the ATV can, can ignite materials on the forest floor or they've got a, a bonfire going. Um, those, those types of things can contribute to ignitions that then can start fires. And that's what we saw happen um, <clears throat> in an area where, uh, in, for example, um, Nova Scotia this, this summer near Halifax, people were not paying attention to the fact that there was a fire ban and they were burning things and they just, even after fire started, they weren't listening to the the recommendations of the local fire chief. So that's one of the easiest places to start is just to get people to pay attention and to really um, adhere to fire bans. Um, So that's that's a a really good place to start. Well, and it is, uh, you know, the old saying, common sense isn't all that common. I can remember even last summer when we were doing shows in the midst of some of these massive forest fires and people contacting us and, and echoing what you're saying now, that they were they were seeing people that were driving their ATVs in the forest. They were seeing people that were disrespecting fire bans and then, of course, surprised when new fires were cropping up. It seemed almost everywhere over the course of the summer. Cheryl, it, it's been a great conversation. We do uh, thank you for joining us. Have a great night. Oh, you too. Thank you. During the holidays, loved ones are in our hearts, no matter where they are. Well, we told you last night that every night this week we would endeavor to bring you a story of someone that won't be home for Christmas this year, or maybe in the past has been unable to be home for Christmas. I think it's something that, you know, we all have this vision of, uh, of Christmas. And it may be different for different people, but gathering with family and friends. And then for some of us, we can't imagine what it would be like to just be away from home. It could be a couple of provinces away. It could be an ocean away. And our next guest has experienced Christmas away from home. Our guest is Rob Brown. He's a former NHLer, the man who made Mary Lemieux famous. Rob, welcome to the program. (laughs) uh, I'm not sure that's but yeah hey it's good to see good to hear from you it's been a while <laughs> it has been uh and thanks for coming on tonight to, to tell your story um and well i'm gonna let you tell your story because i'm you know you've been away for world junior hockey championships and i'm not sure what else may have over the years taken you away from christmas but if you go back to those early teenage years what's it like and maybe it's super exciting but what's it like to not be home for christmas for you 
it, not fun. I, I'm a, my, our family was very, very close, and I love the, the Christmas time. It's my favorite time of year. Uh, the first time I was away from home was we were in Russia with the World Juniors, and Christmas was weird because we were in a different country. No one spoke the language. The food was different. It was, but it was still a pretty cool experience. And it, you didn't really notice that you were missing Christmas as much because you were in this big tournament and the excitement. It was the following year in Pittsburgh where I really experienced the, the homesickness of, of not being home for Christmas. I I was, I think, 19 years old or might have been 20 then. And I remember Christmas was a big time for our family. I remember my mother sent all these parcels down. And I was I lived in Pittsburgh. I lived with a family. The Penguins put me with a family, and they were really nice, and they were so good to me. But it was not home. But I remember my mom sent all these parcels down. I had to go pick them up at Customs. And that was excitement. I'm going to go get all those presents. I'm going to put them under the tree at the house. And, I mean, it's going to start to feel a little more like Christmas. I went to the customs place, and the customs officer asked who I was. Okay, he looked at the sheet. He said, okay, I'm not sure that uh, everything that's written on this sheet is truthful. So I'm going to have to ask you to open up all of these presents here. Oh, So he no. made me open up all of my Christmas presents. I think it was like December the 16th or 17th in this little office and there I am opening up all my Christmas presents I was heartbroken I'm like I I'm a guy that if there's a present and my dog rips a little bit of it the 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 wrapping paper I will make sure my wife goes and rewraps it before I can see it I love surprises so it was absolutely horrifying as this guy with this smirk on his face watched me open up all my Christmas presents about a week before Christmas out of spite I don't know why and then I had to go, I actually went back to the house and the, the lady of the house, she rewrapped them for me. But the surprise element of my Christmas was gone. Well, you and I are similar in, in, in one way. Uh, I love surprises as well, especially at Christmas time, uh, to the point where my wife is the opposite. She kind of, she's a little bit sneaky, so I can't put tr- uh, her presents under the tree until late Christmas Eve because she's somebody that will shake them and try and figure out what it is. And on the <laughs> off chance that she guesses correctly, I would just be devastated. So I can't put them under there too late. So for, for you, for the World Junior Hockey Championship and then, uh, you know, playing that first year with the Pittsburgh Penguins in the National Hockey League, it, it it seems like it would be bittersweet because these are both things that you've worked, and you're still a very young man, but you had worked your entire life. This was your dream, your dream to play in the World Junior Hockey Championship, your dream to make it to the National Hockey League, and yet at the same time, you're you're sad because you're away from home. Well, absolutely. Uh, everything about the World Juniors was incredible. Uh, we actually we won the gold medal, so it was just an amazing experience. But you just... It was a little different back then. Families didn't travel with you. Nowadays, a lot of the families, they go to the World Juniors with their kids. Back when I went, families didn't go. We didn't have cell phones. So it wasn't like I could FaceTime my mom and dad on Christmas morning and talk to them. In Russia, you had to call an operator, tell them the number you wanted to call, and then sometime in the next 12 to 24 hours, your phone would ring. You didn't get to go. You didn't call and then talk to someone at that moment. You would go and you'd be in the hallway, you'd be in another room. Everybody in in Russia, all the players on the team, left their doors wide open. So if someone's phone rang, someone would run and answer it, and then someone could go get that guy because you never knew when you were going to get through to your parents. 
So that was really hard. And we were all young kids, you know, 17, 18, 19 year old kids that for all of us, it was the first time being away from home. And Team Canada did a wonderful job with a Christmas dinner and have little presents and all that. But there's, you didn't have waking up in the morning with your parents and your brothers and sisters and sitting there opening presents. So it, it was hard, but that was the first of 16 straight years not being home with my family for Christmas because I was always on the East Coast. And in the NHL then, you had the 23rd and 26th game. So when I retired, I was so excited my first Christmas back, being able to be with my family again, seeing my mom. And at this point now, we had our kids, so there was grandkids in the in the house. So I really looked forward to that first Christmas back. Okay, I want to get back to this uh, 16 straight years not being home for Christmas because that's uh, that's mind-boggling. I do want to just kind of circle back. My my image, and you can correct me, my image of a Russian hotel room, particularly at the time that you would have been there, would have been cold and drab and not very festive at all. <laughs> it, it, what, what was it like? Well, I, I room with a guy named Dan Curry, who I ended up playing with in the minors at one point. If, 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 if I rolled out of my bed, I would actually land on his bed before it hit the floor. So the rooms were very, very small. It was like, uh, it'd be like a dorm room, except a third of the size. Um, and then you had the, the old style phone, like the rotary phone in there. And I remember you would, you would phone and then they'd operator say, okay, and then hang up. And then six, 10, 12, 14 hours, the next day, the phone would ring and it would be your family on the other line. So, no, it wasn't festive. The food, oh, the the milk was lumpy. I remember the first time I went oh. to have a glass of milk and, oh, it was disgusting. So we started drinking Pepsi Cola with every meal because it was the only thing that we actually Cause you are athletes knew the all. taste of. Yeah, yeah, we all lost weight. I think I lost like 16 pounds in a two-week tournament just because the food was so bad. When we went over to Russia, we were in Ottawa for our training camp. Uh, myself and Greg Hoggett, a buddy of mine on the team, we all took hockey bags and went to the local. I, I don't. It would have been. It would have been like a Walmart type store mm. and stocked up on chocolate bars and peanut butter and nuts and chips. And we had hockey bags of junk food, just so that we'd have food that we knew or tasted for when right. we played so you the must, gold medal. You had game. a bit of a forewarning then that the, that the your selection oh, yeah. might not be that great. Yeah. Yes, yeah, they told us before we went over that you want to prepare. For our, the gold medal game, it was a, an 11 a.m. game, I think. Uh, we played the Russians. Our trainers got up, went into the kitchen at the hotel, and made us craft uh, mac, mac and cheese. That was what we had as our pregame meal, and it was the best-tasting thing I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> oh, that is a wild story. Okay, now fast forward. You're in the NHL, and, of course, you already told us about the uh, the, the grumpy person that made you open up all your uh, all your presents a couple of weeks in advance because he didn't believe who you were and why people were sending you presents at Christmas time, but then that started a streak of did you say sixteen years of being away from home for Christmas? Sixteen years, my entire career, I was uh, out east, and when I played, you we played every year on the twenty third, and we played every year on the twenty sixth. So you couldn't. You had two days. There was not enough time to fly back out west to Edmonton and get back out there. So occasionally I'd have, my mother had been out for a Christmas or my father, but I never had my whole family together for a Christmas for 16 years. Eventually my wife and I, we had, we had our own Christmas, but it was, it was different. It wasn't being back home with, you know, extended family and every friends and just everything about Christmas. 
So, yeah, 16 years. So when I finally retired and we moved back home here with our kids, that first Christmas was pretty exciting for us. Uh, I can imagine it would have been. Rob, uh, thank you for joining us and sharing your story with us. There are lots of people that, for whatever reason, are not able to be home at Christmas. We all, I think, aspire to it, uh, but some can't for whatever reason. And uh, uh, you spent a lot of time on the road over many Christmas seasons. Thanks for sharing your story. Well, thanks for talking to me, and uh, I hope you and your family have a very Merry Christmas. Yeah, and same to you. Thanks, Rob. Take care. That's Rob Brown, former NHL player, former member of that, as he described, that gold medal winning junior team at the World Junior Hockey Championship that year that he was there was played in Russia. And we'll continue along this line uh, for the balance of the week, bringing you stories of people who, for various reasons, simply won't be home for Christmas. For those who can't make it home this holiday season, our thoughts are with you. If only in my dreams. Canada's population has really exploded. It's exploded over the last several years, and it really took an uptick in the third quarter of this year. The population increased nearly half a million people. That's 1.1%. Now, on a percentage basis, may not sound like quite that much, 1.1%. However, that 1.1% makes it the biggest population growth rate since 1957. Now, in the 50s, one of the main drivers of population growth was the post-war baby boom. Now, it's international migration. Uh, to talk about this issue, we're joined by Nathaniel Louster. He's Associate Professor Sociology at the University of British Columbia. Nathaniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Canada has certainly had some aggressive, um, uh, you know, goals for immigration over the last maybe several years. Are you at all surprised at the rate? Uh, I'll ask you that first, and then maybe we'll get into some of the implications of what this means. Uh, you know, it's not really so surprising in terms of the rate of growth, given the uh, really large targets that have been set by Canada, um, and given a sort of recovery from uh, a drop-off and a real sort of change in our migration patterns through the pandemic. And of course, uh, we've been told forever, and you'd be able to shed some light on this, that uh, if we're if our birth rate, and, and this is not exclusive to Canada, but a lot of countries around the world, especially uh, Western countries, are seeing a decline in the birth rate. And if you want to keep growing and keep the economy moving forward, you have to grow that population in a different manner. And and that's what Canada seems to be doing now. What are the implications of this, though? At first, you know, and, and where is everybody coming from? Is it, are there certain countries that are accounting for more of our population growth than others? Is it people fleeing war-torn countries? Uh, what's what's leading to this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so uh, I guess first to, to tackle the birth uh, issue, uh, as a demographer, these are the things that we pay attention to, right? Um, demographers are people like me who study population. We're really interested in births, deaths, and migration, right? So these are the three big forces. And, and you're absolutely right that effectively births and deaths have moved pretty close to balancing each other out. Um, It is striking that in that third quarter this past year, we actually did see births move quite a bit ahead of deaths, which has been a shift, uh, especially from the first quarter, where they were exactly even almost. 
but um, but but definitely that's not the big driver at this point of our population growth. It is immigration, uh, both in terms of um, uh, net permanent migrants who are coming in, so permanent migrant immigration, um, permanent residents, and also non-permanent residents. So both of those are really driving this trend. In terms of where people are coming from, um, there are some really interesting shifts. Um, that said, we, we've had sort of at the top of our sending countries uh, has been India, China, and the Philippines for a fair amount of time. So they've been our biggest senders. But there has been this gradual shift where India has really uh, started to outpace the other uh, two top sending countries, while the Philippines has tended to fall further and further behind. Um, and in 2022, for instance, the Philippines was actually no longer even in third, uh, and that's the first time we've seen that for a while. But um, but effectively, that's the biggest change that I'm really seeing is India is, is really starting to outpace other senders um, uh, in terms of our strongest senders. And do, do we have we established the reason? Sorry, sorry, have we established the reasons for that? Uh, not really, at least not that I'm aware of. I think in part it's just that uh, there's been a real rise in the number and in the interest uh, uh, from India, and there's been a sort of pullback in some other countries. But I don't know if anyone's looked at the exact reasons for why um, why we've seen that shift. Uh, and, and if we go circling back to the birth rate, is there is there a, a sweet spot in terms of? Uh, the number of births outpacing the number of deaths, is there a certain birth rate that would be seen as ideal? And and have we been close to that uh, in the last few years? You know, it's a good question. Um, If you think about um, them balancing out, if if you had a sort of stable population, um, then you would want uh, just a little more than than two births for every, um, let's say, every, every woman, effectively. Uh, as an uh, as an effective replacement rate, and that's what we often talk about in demography, uh, as a sort of replacement rate for replacing the people, uh, effectively replacing the people who would be parents with with new children, and that would effectively stabilize a population over time. Um, so we're well below that replacement rate uh, in Canada. At the same time, our age structure is such that we're still kind of balancing out in terms of the number of births and deaths over time. Um, So some of that is actually about uh, the immigration that we get. We actually bring in a lot of people who then have children and tend to live a little longer um, as immigrants to Canada, and that helps keep our birth rate actually higher than it would otherwise be. Uh, so we do see that effect of of actually our immigration contributing to boosting up our births in terms of the total births that we have. Is there anything concerning in these numbers as you look at them in terms of the demographic, in terms of of uh, birth rates, death rates, uh, immigration levels, anything that you look at and, and go, you know, maybe this is something we need to keep an eye on in terms of the trends? Sure. I mean, certainly the big thing that demographers always want to pay attention to is death rates and how they affect life expectancies. And we have seen some falling back in life expectancies that have been particularly due to uh, COVID, but also due to the um, uh, effectively the, the crisis in, in unsafe drug supplies. 
Um, so those are the two uh, real drivers, we think, of uh, some of the recent fallbacks in life expectancy. And so that's a mortality trend that we really want to pay attention to. Uh, that would um, seem quite significant. Uh, certainly, I think everybody knows that the drug problem has uh, has seemed to be growing, and it's very scary in a lot of uh, places, not only in major centers, but in, in small communities as well. But uh, to have uh, to see that it's having that big an impact on these uh, demographic trends, uh, to me, is surprising, maybe not to you. I mean, the impact, if you look at it um, in terms of life expectancy, it's, it is there, and it's real. Um, uh, in terms of total number of deaths that we're seeing uh, and affecting the demographic patterns of population growth, it's a pretty small effect there, but uh, but definitely a real effect and obviously real and, and incredibly painful for the people who've suffered losses. Yes. There is a certain unpredictability to what the economy will be like, what the housing situation will be like, what the need for workers will be like a year or two, three years out. Uh, do governments, would you expect any rethinking of those targets or are we set and, and, and we just need to figure out a way to welcome these, this level of population growth over the next few years? Uh, you know, I suspect, and, and I'm not privy to all the discussions that take place, but I suspect that they're constantly evaluating and, and thinking through um, how things are working uh, in terms of setting immigration targets and, and policy. Um, but, uh, but I don't think there's any plans to scale back at this point. And so then we have to look, I guess, at some of the the implications. One is perhaps a net benefit to the employment in this country, where we have been told of shortages in various industries over the last while, and an influx of people presumably uh, would be able to address some of those issues. Do you see that being the case? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's really how a lot of Canada's immigration policy works is that we're bringing in people who we expect to uh, actually fill the jobs that we're encountering shortages in. Um, Now, that said, there are issues, right, in terms of, uh, for instance, not always recognizing the credentials, um, uh, the licensing of of a lot of our immigrants. So we have a lot of immigrants who come here and, and find that they're at least for a while, unable to get jobs in some of the fields in which they're actually experts. Yeah, and that's been an issue for a long time, and I don't know how much closer we are to solving that. Maybe there's some things that are being done to expedite it in some cases. Uh, And on the flip side, so there's uh, certainly a benefit if industries have been struggling to, uh, to be able to staff up over the last several years, and now they have an influx of workers, uh, and some of them, many of them, will be able to fill some of those jobs. But we're also in the middle of this this real housing and affordable crisis, uh, affordable housing crisis, where people who are already in Canada are having trouble affording rent, uh, giving up perhaps on the dream of home ownership. Uh, it's not only rent and mortgages, it's cars, it's transportation, it's food. Right now, it seems that everything is more expensive and continuing to go up, even if the rate of inflation has decreased. Um, how, how do you suspect the nation is going to deal with this many newcomers, given all of that? I mean, I think, again, that in many respects, uh, immigrants are actually going to be contributing to the solution. 
Um, that is, we actually need people to construct all of the housing um, that we know we're actually behind on, right? We have these these real housing shortages in, in lots of our major areas across Canada. Um, but we need workers to actually build that housing. And uh, in many respects, that's something that we expect a lot of immigrants are going to be contributing to is that workforce. Uh, in this case, skilled labor that we need uh, to actually construct that housing. So I think that's going to be a big part of the solution. Um, but it is certainly going to take time. Uh, housing takes a while to build. There are initiatives out here in places like B.C. that the government has just rolled out that, that are really going to uh, aim to shorten that time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be really important in terms of uh, better housing everybody in Canada, including um, the large number of immigrants ri- uh, arriving. But um, but I think that they're going to be uh, uh, contributing to that labor force to build that housing if we allow it to be built. Right. And I guess the challenge is if we look at the stats over the last few years, it just doesn't seem like those new housing starts. And as you say, there are some programs and a couple, BC is one, that have just been recently announced. It does take uh, cooperation in certain, in a lot of cases, between different uh, levels of government to get some of these projects uh, started and completed. But if we look at the stats over the last few years, it, I think most people would say that those housing starts just haven't been keeping up uh, with the pace of the increased population and with the demand and curious about whether uh, we're going to be stuck with uh, rising house prices for the foreseeable future until we can fast track some of these. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think that fast tracking is really the way that we need to go and where I think governments, um, like here in BC, where I'm located, have been trying to move, right, is, is trying to fast track all this stuff. Um, and I think that's really, at the moment, um, the real uh, blockage that we see is in these approvals. But once those approvals do shift, that is, once we shift to a regime where we start allowing housing, which again, I think we've got a lot of movement in that direction, then the next possible blockage is going to be in construction labor. Um, And so that's where, again, I think immigrants are going to be offering a lot of that labor and a lot of those skilled trades. Now, that said, it's it's worth thinking about, um, you know, tying some of our immigration targets as well to bringing in those skilled trades that we need and making sure those skilled trades are recognized and the credentials that people bring are recognized in terms of being able to uh, to contribute in this way. Um, But I think that's ultimately where we're going to see again, immigrants acting as a real solution to this persistent problem we have. As we liberalize those regulations and enable that housing to get built, we're going to need people to build it. In terms of being a popular destination for people from uh, other countries, and we know that uh, we're growing quite rapidly and have for uh, the last several years, and again, those aggressive targets are, are still in place for the foreseeable future, how do we stack up? Are we are there other countries that are more popular? Uh, how do we rate in terms of people wanting to come to this country in particular? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think there's real variation. Uh, I think there's still some immigrants who see Canada, for instance, as a, as a stepping stone to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, But I think increasingly, especially with some of the politics, quite frankly, in the U.S., I think Canada is actually seen as a great place to go in its own right and maybe a safer place to go um, than the U.S., where you still have a lot of opportunity. Um, And that, too, I mean, a lot of, for instance, the tech companies that we have in the U.S. are also opening up uh, offices in Canada in response to difficulties getting that 
talented labor into the U.S. in the first place. So I think uh, that's probably something we'll see continue uh, moving on into the future. Um, so I, I think in that sense that we're probably rising in desirability, um, uh, especially relative to our biggest and nearest competitor in the U.S., but uh, but it's it's a good question. I, I haven't seen any recent polling of potential immigrants, which is a difficult thing to do anyway, to really <laughs> settle that uh, that that question of of how our desirability stacks up. Well, most of us, I think, can vouch for the fact that it it is a great country and it is a great place to live. Uh, Nathaniel, thanks very much uh, for your time in helping us wade through some of these uh, stats that were released today. We appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks for inviting me on. Have you ever wondered who sings that song? It's usually pretty easy, though, isn't it? To find out. Most of us have shazammed a song to find out the name, find out the artist. A quick Google search will uh, also do the trick. I don't know how many times I've just typed in a few lyrics or even just a brief description of the song in Google, and it'll yield usually some pretty quick and fairly accurate results, but not so in at least one case where it took Internet sleuths about 16 years to find the singer of a song many of them had become slightly obsessed with. This is the song. The song is called How Long, and the singer is Paula Toledo, who joins us now. Paula, welcome to the program. Appreciate you coming on tonight. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, This is a a bit of a wild story just from the outside. I've been having a hard time wrapping around uh, what it would be like to be in the middle of it when you found out what had happened. And I think we probably have to go back maybe and start at the very beginning. So first of it, maybe a little bit of a background about you. You're a musician. You have produced music. We just heard a little clip of one of the songs that you produced. But what what has your life in music been? Well, my life in music, I've had a lot of different detours, but my background is actually in marketing. I had a business degree, and um, in my late 20s, I decided to leave all that behind. I didn't know I was going to go into music. I kind of fell into it in a very serendipitous way. And uh, I just started writing music and writing songs. I I was in a band in, you know, in high school and I really loved performing. And so I uh, ended up recording a bunch of songs and demoing a bunch of songs. And um, I just ended up meeting the right people who were interested in licensing it in film and television. And one thing led to another with how long and, and eventually I recorded um, an LP. So How Long was never commercially released. It was actually um, licensed to TV and film, as I mentioned, but it was never really put out there into the world. So um, how this all came about is really a mystery to me. Okay, and we're going we're to get to that in, in some detail. I, I'm curious, though, what was the industry like when you recorded this? Things have changed uh, quite rapidly here over the last 10 or 15 years, the music industry, to what it was 
even in the early 2000s to what it is now. What was that mm-hmm. scene like? Uh, that's a great question. Um, back in those days, so I was performing quite a bit, and uh, I had like three regular weekly gigs, gigs that I was performing at and, and uh, playing these songs. And there was like, you know, a couple of songs that people would come up to me afterwards and say, like, I really love that song. And how long was one of them? Um, I ended up having quite a few um, record industry people coming to my shows and, and showing interest. And they would ask me for my demos. And then um, I think what they would do is they would take those and they would uh, send them to radio stations, um, you know, that were sort of the hit makers and kind of like test them out there. And if the, I guess the program director really liked the song, then that was like, okay, that's, that's a low risk situation to, uh, to sign on the artist. And so I think with that song, how long, it kind of got out there to as far as like the record ex- executives at the time and, and um, the radio program directors, but it never really stuck, which mm-hmm. I find now in retrospect, I find it really funny because now there are these people who have been searching for me because they, they like the song and it's, it's really connected with them. And so, um, it's, oh. yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no, that's okay. I was just going to say, it just goes to show you how, um, you know, the industry sometimes may not necessarily know what is going to be that song that connects with people. And so now just, you know, in terms of what it's like now, I think indie artists are way more in touch with their music and way more in touch with how to get their music out there in the world. And so that barrier is not as, yeah. So many examples in the music industry, and, and it kind of goes back to the old adage that people sometimes just don't know what they want until they hear it. And for somebody else to be the arbiter of mm-hmm. what's going to be uh, popular and what isn't can be a very tall task. But that must have also been nerve-wracking at the time, I would think. Uh, you're performing in clubs, you know that there are maybe record people there, and then if they like what uh, what you're putting out, the next step is to take it to the radio station, and you may or may not have any contact just crossing your fingers and hoping that someday somebody calls and says, we're going to play your song. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely um, a bit nerve wracking, but I think, you know, in retrospect, um, I think that it is really, it's, you do a disservice to yourself to try to cater to what people want from you. I think as an artist, you really have to just, really just stick to your guns and be like, okay, this is what appeals to me. And if it appeals to me, I'm sure it will appeal to other people. And I think the song is kind of a testament to that. Was it a difficult song to write? Um, I never really have that much. Like the songs, yeah, I think, you know, from, for the most part, the songs that made it on the album or kind of made it to finished production were never really difficult songs for me to write. They usually just came pretty connected um you know the chords the melody the lyrics usually all came pretty connected within within a sitting i would say like within hours of making it it would it would come to be um the tricky part is kind of finding the arrangement and delivering the right um intention behind the vocal and the performance um but it was definitely fun to make Okay, now let's start down this journey um, of uh, the song, How Long? And you, and you said off the top that it, it wasn't necessarily something that, that got airplay or a lot of attention, but you had licensed it. Was it for television or what was it licensed for? 
Yeah, it was licensed for TV and a made-for-TV film. So I was performing, um, and I had regular gigs, and someone came up to me after my show and said that they worked for Lionsgate Entertainment and um, would be interested in that song, and they could pass it on to some music supervisors for a made-for-TV film that they were working on. So I passed that song on. It was complete. It had been mastered, and I was thinking about putting it on my LP, um, but that for some reason, never made it on my LP. I think it was sort of like a creative decision at the time that I decided to keep it off. (laughs) Our guest is Paula Toledo, Vancouver musician, a wonderful story of her song called How Long that she recorded in the early 2000s. It was licensed for television, and then uh, she just presumably just kind of forgot about it a little bit uh, until Paula, I guess quite recently, Somebody, I don't know, did they contacted you and said you you might want to prepare yourself because you're suddenly going to become much more popular than maybe you ever dreamed you would? How did this all play out? <laughs> Something to that effect. It was about <laughs> two Fridays ago. I got an email um, from someone saying, um, just be pre- prepared. You're going to have a lot of people contacting you. Your song, How Long, was placed, a small snippet, was placed on a Russian bootleg DVD. And um, somebody was curious about who the artist was behind that song and posted on an internet forum. And it just kind of propagated more inquiry over the years. Who's this artist? Nobody was able to track down this artist. Um, And eventually, like, a dedicated subreddit, um, how long will it take, uh, community came together in a dedicated search to find me. And so um, they were kind of warning me, like, be prepared, you're going to be getting a lot of people contacting you. And then um, I proceeded to get more and more emails with the very similar kind of um, uh, just letting me know that my song was placed on this Russian bootleg DVD and that a lot of people were elated that they had found me. And it just, it sounded, you know, it didn't sound real. I didn't really take it seriously. But then my inbox got flooded, my DMs got flooded. And then I thought, well, I think there might be something to this because my song, How Long, was never out there in the world. Like, it was licensed to TV many, many, many years ago. Um, I don't know how they would be able to track down that I'm associated with this song, so there might be something to it. And then um, I, I started getting... I have an area on my website where people can pre-order my album that I've been working on for almost about 16 years. So I have a lot of songs that have been recorded over the years um, that haven't seen the light of day. And I've been trying to figure out a way to get it out there in the world. And so people have the option to um, pre-order the album. And I, I started getting um, donations, like PayPal donations, like money in my inbox. And I thought, well, this has to be, I think there's something to this because I don't think, you know, anyways, it just like I came home, um, I was out at the time I came home and I talked to my 16 year old son, who's very tech savvy. And I said, can you figure out what's going on here? And he said, well, click on the links. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> we're not supposed to click on the links. Right. And he's like, no, 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 this is a Reddit and a YouTube link. It looks legit. Uh, so he launched it. He played the YouTube video on our TV and it was this whole video essay about, my song that had been deemed lost 
and nobody could figure out who the artist was and how it ended up on these Russian bootleg DVDs. And I was like, oh, my God, this story is true. So that's how okay. we found out about it. Yeah. And you and, and I want to explore that further, but you have now thrice mentioned the phrase Russian bootleg DVD. And I will say <laughs> I am intrigued by that. Do you, do you know anything other than Russian bootleg DVD? Like, what is that? I think I have no idea the connection between how it ended up on the Russian bootleg DVDs, but it was actually a French film. So it was a French film, from what I understand, called Jacques le Croquant or something to that effect. And they, it, it ended up in, Rush, in Russia, on a, the Russian version of it, with like the song toggling, like a, I think a small snippet of the chorus toggling between the menu items on the Russian like DVD. So it was like the background music between the menus, menu selection. And somebody had heard that and liked it and posted on the internet forum, like, do you know who sings the song in Russia? So right. I think uh, it, it just appeared in all these Russian forums. And then um, there's a whole community, by the way, which I had no idea, that are searching for lost media and lost songs. So that and ended up on the Russian last bootleg week. DVDs. <laughs> just searching searching for lost media which i think is, is such a so interesting like the whole mystery behind not knowing who the original author is is intriguing um it, it is incredibly in, interesting yeah, yeah. and yeah I, um, and you know, there are people that follow like there's a whole mystery you know people that are really into like mystery um these mystery shows and things like that so i guess it's the equivalent of that but in music Right. And so I'm curious then, so so for these uh, fans of yours that you didn't know you had that were part of this Reddit group that were uh, searching for all of these years to try and find out first the name of the song and then obviously the name of the artist, that the fans that are reaching out to you, are they reaching out from all over the world? Is there a certain pocket, pocket of the world where they are predominantly from or is it is it a real cross-section? It's a cross-section. So I'm I'm hearing from people from... Italy and Spain and Uruguay and Costa Rica and Mexico and Saudi Arabia and Japan, uh, all over, all over. I'm, I'm just really, really blown away. Um, I think the thing that really, really moves me is that, um, you know, I've heard, you know, performing and everything, you'll get the people coming up to you afterwards and say, like, I really love that song. I really love your music. But this community they're so elated that they solved the mystery and that they found me and that it was the song that connected all of them. It was like, I don't know if it was as much like the love for the song or the love of like, I like this song and we're part of this community looking for the search. And in this search, we've all kind of connected in a really meaningful way. And so what really moves me is that I'm, I'm getting um, people contacting me saying that, you know, they were really struggling. Like this happened, you know, probably recently, but also, you know, during the pandemic. And I imagine, you know, people were saying that they were not in a really good place and that they became part of the search, part of this community, and that this one particular community, the how long will it take Reddit, Reddit community, that they were really kind. Like there wasn't, there weren't trolls in the group. Everybody was collaborative. It was a really united search. It was a really positive experience. 
And so when they reached out and told me that they found me, everybody was just like overjoyed. Like people saying that they screamed when they found out that they found me, that they were crying. Like it was just like on another level of what you would get from listening to a song. It was just a, uh, like, I don't know, I guess the words collective effervescence kind of like, that's kind of what it felt like. And now I'm kind of brought into that collective effervescence and it's, it's just, it's such an incredible feeling. Like I can't even explain what would come close to it in my, uh, in my whole lifetime. Have, uh, this is incredibly powerful, by the way, the way that you're describing this and, and, and what it obviously means to you. Uh, we're, we're up against the clock here. We only have about a minute remaining. Any new plans mm-hmm. for this song now, knowing and, and giving everything that's happened over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, well, the song is on Bandcamp, so people can donate a dollar or more, and I've received, like, incredible, generous donations. I'm, I think about, I've raised about $500, which are going to be completely 100% of the proceeds this year, are going to go to Music Heals, which, which provides um, uh, music therapy programs for youth and young people. Um, so I'm really excited about that, and then I plan to release more music in the future. I think that the community is now asking me for more and I have all these songs that I've yet to release so I'm really really looking forward to getting these songs out in the world Paula we appreciate your time it's a wonderful story and uh, and the best of luck in the future as you continue down the musical road we appreciate your time oh thanks so much Sid. thanks so much for sharing our story